0: that I felt the, the Lord telling me I had to bring today in light of recent events. I'll get back, Lord willing, to Mark, Mark's Gospel next Sunday. We are sad that we can't have that service we planned this afternoon. That will have to wait until a future date. We'll let you know. Uh, we're looking forward to being able to have greater freedom to meet together and uh, to worship together. Our country is in turmoil. Our country is filled with sorrow and anger and frustration and protests. Protests are all across the nation, from big cities to small towns not only in our country, but across the world, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Australia, people are protesting. Protests are in small towns. I was reading recently about a protest, Black Lives Matter, in a town in Texas where the Ku Klux Klan was founded. Um... The protests are in response to the brutality against George Floyd, an African-American man killed by uh, police in Minneapolis. The police officers, one of them is under arrest now for second-degree murder, the others for aiding and abetting murder. There is a danger for us, a danger for white middle-class Americans, and for white middle-class evangelicals, and that is that we, um, we are comfortable with our position, comfortable in our suburbs. We have never experienced unfair treatment at the hands of the authorities. What's the big deal? They're making far too much of this. Why all the fuss? And if that is our attitude, I challenge you to watch the video. Tragically, you can watch an eight-minute video of this event. And if you have not watched it, you may not be able to watch it. Many cannot. But if you have not watched it, then you will understand better. The man's last words were, I cannot breathe, officer, I cannot breathe, he said repeatedly. He cried out for his mother, Mama, as people do as they die. There were bystanders who were held at bay by one of the police officers and the, the bystanders were pleading with the officer who had his knee on his neck. And they were pleading He's not responding. He's, let him up, let him up. I found myself pleading. I spoke to my computer. Let him up, let him up. It's a tragic video to watch. I hope it will be a catalyst for change. You and I, as we observe events like this in our country and in our culture, turn to the Bible. As we turn to the Bible on page one, we read these words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God created Adam and Eve in his own image. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. Among the things that we know is that all human beings are in the image of God. I don't know what color Adam and Eve were, but I do know that all the people of the earth and all of the variety of our skin colors were all their descendants. And so we are all, in a profound sense, all members of one family and all brothers and sisters. C.S. Lewis had a way of saying things that are unforgettable. Let me read to you what he said. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked with a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with. Immortals whom we work with, whom we marry, whom we snub and exploit, Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we must be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have from the outside, outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption George Floyd was not treated as a man who was created in the image of God. He was not treated as an immortal. In this difficult time, we always look up. We look up to God and we we open His Word and we meditate on its meaning and application for us. I'm going to read from Ephesians 2 this morning, beginning at verse 11. Ephesians 2 11 to 22 are three paragraphs that are about the church and about Jews and Gentiles and how all are brought together in Christ. Before I read, let me just remind you that Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, a Gentile church, and so he'll address, he'll say, you Gentiles, he'll address them in the second person. We'll follow uh, Paul's argument. We're beginning at Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember, notice the verb remember is repeated in verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, that is, the Jews and the Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law, with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he has put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, away, the Gentiles, And peace to those who were new, the Jewish people, to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. And also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. An amazing passage. Paul begins by urging the church to remember How in the past you were excluded. You were apart from the people of God. Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles. We need to understand that Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Notice what he says. The Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcised and themselves God's people. They are the circumcision. They are marked by the covenant seal that marks them out as the people of God. Jews regarded Gentiles as ignorant. They, they, they're ignorant of God's law. They, they are idolaters. They are foolish. Um, they're, they're dogs. They, they totally rejected the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles thought the Jews were weird. These odd religious people with their, their dress and their, their habits. They're just weird people. And, and so there was this hostility between Jew and Gentile. As, as Paul addresses the Gentiles who've now become Christians, notice how he describes them or their condition before they were saved in verse 12. He says in verse 12, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants. You were without God. You were without hope. Verse 12 is a hopeless sentence. That's the condition of all people. Cut off, alienated from God, apart from Christ. When we lived in Germany for several years, in Germany we were foreigners. Uh, you could tell by our foreign accent. We were not part of the German Kasse, um, the health system. That is, when a, when a German went in to buy a medication at the, uh, at the drugstore, he paid three marks and I might pay 110 marks. I was a foreigner, I was an outsider, not part of the culture. Um, in Germany, our ID was not our <laughs> was not our driver's license. Our ID was our passport. And then, after four years, we arrived at Kennedy Airport in New York City, and we're in that long line to go through to be received back into the country. And I remember feeling at home. I can speak English. Um, I can give this American my American passport. I'm here at home. Well, one of my fears is that, I, well, let me ask the question, are people of color sometimes made to feel as if they are in a country not their own in the United States, in their own country? Let me tell you the story of John and Joan. That's not their real names. John and Joan are a black couple in our church in Oneonta. John is, um, or was, the manager of the corning plant in Oneonta. He's now retired. Uh, He had, I don't know how many people under his authority as the manager of that corning plant. John John has been with Corning for decades, and he was transferred at various times from one town to another uh, in his career. They told about a, an experience they had decades ago when they were a young couple. Uh, they were moving from one of those transfers from one town to another in New York State. And um, they were, because they were moving, they were, they were driving two cars, uh, Joan in the front car, John in the back car. They had kids in the car, and they had clothing and various things in the cars as they made their way from one place to another. They went through one town and a police officer pulled up next to Joan, the front car, and angrily pointed her over. They were very, very careful, they said, very careful not to speed through the town, not to go over the speed limit. They were pulled over and uh, the officer went back to John's car and began to ask questions. Who are you? Let me see your driver's license. Where are you going? Who is that? Well, that's my mother in the car with me, he explained. And he explained what they were doing, and uh, they finally answered all the questions, and then they were let go, and they went on. As John and Joan tell this story, they're always very, very careful not to say anything bad about the police officer. But I personally believe there's only one reason they were pulled over and that's because of the color of their skin. They were finally permitted to drive on but they were treated by outside, as outsiders, as foreigners in their own country. Before moving to Oneonta, I learned later on that Joan had called a friend who lived in Oneonta and asked, what's it like in Oneonta for black people? as if she's a foreigner in her own country. Well, in Ephesians 2.12, Paul is saying that before we come to Christ, all of humanity is a foreigner to God, excluded from the promises, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We are all, we have no passport. We have no home And no hope. But that has dramatically changed for them now. Look at verse 13. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, verse 14. Uh, Everything has changed. Where there was once hostility, Hostility between God and man and hostility between Jew and Gentile. Hostility is ended. Um, Notice it says in verse 14, Christ has torn down the wall of division. The wall of division is the law with its regulations which created division between Jew and Gentile. But the law, there was in the temple at the time a wall surrounding the temple which uh, Gentiles could not go beyond the wall. And there is the suggestion that perhaps uh, Paul is alluding to that wall. The temple was still standing at the time this letter was written, by the way. Um, th- there, there is a sign on the wall. Now imagine this. Here's the temple. And there are walls that create various courts around the temple. The outermost wall is as far as Gentiles may come. And this is what is written in a sign on that wall. No stranger is to enter within the, the wall around the temple and the enclosure. Whoever is caught intruding will be responsible for his own death, which will follow. How's that for a welcome sign? You come too close, you'll die and it'll be your fault. Christ Has torn down the wall and opened the door to all. Christ has created a new humanity. Do you notice that expression in verse 15? That's the church. Christ has created a new humanity. Out of the two groups, Jew and Gentile, he has created a new humanity, thus making peace. Verse 15. Peace is a major theme of this letter and a major theme of this section. The word peace occurs no fewer than four times in the three paragraphs which we read. Notice it says that Christ has brought peace by the power of the cross. Look at verse 16. Um, And in one body to reconcile both of them to God, both Jew and Gentile, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This passage celebrates the awesome power of the cross. The cross bridges the gap between man and God. The cross bridges the gap between Jew and Gentile and ends hostility. The cross puts to death their hostility it says in verse 16. Racism is prejudice or hatred based on race and skin color. Racism is a belief that my race is superior because of my ethnicity, because of my skin color, better than others. Racism results in hostility between people because they have different ethnic backgrounds and different skin color. Of course, in the United States, it is principally hostility between black and white. This has a long history in our country. The first Africans were imported on slave ships in the Virginia colony in 1619. So that by the time of the revolution... There was slavery already in North America for 150 years. That was by the time of the Reformation, pardon me, the Revolution, the American Revolution in 1775. And we have been through a lot since then, haven't we? Civil War, Reconstruction, the Jim Crow laws, segregation, busing, affirmative action. And there still is systemic racism in our country. And of course, this is not only black. I mean, there is also prejudice expressed against other ethnic groups, against Asians, against Hispanics, against American Indians, and so on and so forth. People who are different than I must be inferior, is the attitude of the racist. Well, picture yourself gathering at the foot of the cross and trying to elbow someone else out because of their skin color. Unthinkable. Picture yourself gathering at the Lord's table and trying to remain hostile, feel superior, have racist, or prejudicial attitudes. It's unthinkable. No, all who are reconciled to God through faith are also reconciled to one another. That's what this passage teaches. Look at verse 17. Christ came and preached peace to you Gentiles who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We are all reconciled to God by Christ through the work of the spirit in our lives. The last paragraph describes the church as a temple. It's an amazing paragraph. The church is the, 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 the temple, the dwelling place of God. It's called a temple in verse 21. It is a living temple. And so Paul is mixing his metaphors. The temple is rising. It is being built as God adds to it, made up of his people, his chosen ones, both Jew and Gentile. This temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, verse 20. Christ Jesus himself is the uh, cornerstone there can be no other cornerstone. Now in, look at verse 19. In God's temple, there are no divisions. There are no more foreigners. There are no more strangers. All are fellow citizens. Verse 19. All are reconciled to God and also reconciled to one another. Here in the sacred temple, God makes us one people. One in Christ. So can there be racism in the church? Can there be racism in the church? Well, Baptists were one until the 1840s in the United States. In 1845, because northern abolitionist Christians could not countenance the appointment of missionaries who were slaveholders Baptist unity in the United States was divided 1845 Southern Baptist Convention the Northern Baptist Convention of course Christians have defended slavery in our country's past let me share a personal experience I was in high school in the 60's I'm that old And I remember my Sunday school teacher when I was a junior in high school, Dr. Martin Luther King, was leading protests, demonstrations, peaceful protests all across the South. I remember my Sunday school teacher saying, he was criticizing Dr. King, saying, wherever he goes, there's trouble. There's trouble. Uh, And he acted as if he should just stay home. My Sunday school teacher back then in the 60s should have said to us, segregation is wrong. Racism is sin against the Almighty. Dr. King is leading peaceful protests against segregation. Let's pray for his success. That's the way my teacher should have spoken. Dr. King is well known for the statement 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week and it must never be. When segregation was just ending by law and um, integration was being enforced by law one mother sent her little first grade girl off to school with fear and trepidation what was this going to be like and after school that day on the first day of the school she welcomed her daughter back first grader and uh, she said well honey what was it like she said oh mom a, a, a black girl sat right next to me and she said well what happened She said, well, we were both so afraid, we held hands all day. Little child shall lead them. Well, the church can never permit racism. A segregated church divided by race is an insult to God's creation, and it is an insult to the cross. It can never be permitted Now, I've only been at Fishkill Baptist Church for a year, but it's my experience. I I have been unable to detect any racism in this church. As far as I can tell, all ethnicities, people of all backgrounds are welcome here. Let me express, however, a concern that I think is a danger for all of us. The danger is that we are comfortable middle class people, untouched personally by these racial injustices. It never happened to me. I, um, I've never been pulled over by, an, uh, by a police officer suspicious of why I had things in the car. I don't have to give my son a talk. And I'm not talking about a talk about the bees and the birds, birds and the bees, but rather a talk about how to relate to the police if you should have an encounter with the police. Black parents must do that in our country. The danger is that we are comfortable in our middle class arrangement and we become indifferent. We become unconcerned, uninformed. And that is not the way we should be. We need to be Christians who are deeply concerned, deeply committed to racial equality in our country. In a profound sense, we need to say, I am George Floyd. You are George Floyd. If one of us can be unfairly treated by the authorities, then anyone can. This passage teaches us that the church must be a house of peace. God's temple where racial hostility has ended forever. God lives here in his church and he makes the rules. Imagine for me just with one moment just as I conclude in the resurrection in the resurrection the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and there will be a the wedding of heaven and earth. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God will be their God. Will there be any injustice or prejudice or racism there? Not a whit. Love will be perfect. Peace, harmony, will be perfect. God wants his church now to be a signpost of that eternal kingdom, a sign to the watching world of the awesome power of the cross to make people one, to make people one with God and one with one another. I'm going to ask that we conclude in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who through his death on the cross paid the penalty for our sin and brings us back to you, our Heavenly Father. We thank you. We honor you. Father, how I pray that we as a church, we as individual Christians may be passionate about justice and righteousness in our country, justice and righteousness and love and peace in your church. Grant that we may be passionate to proclaim the good news that Jesus, crucified and risen, is the answer for the deepest needs of our hearts. He changes us and makes us new. Lord, we thank you for this message and pray that you would burn it into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.